chapter 26. I'll start in verse 9, and then we'll go down to verse 23. So I'll read our passages first, and we'll loop back around and start from the top. This is Paul in front of King Agrippa making his defense. He's been in some legal trouble because he's been sharing Christ, and now he has a chance to present his case to King Agrippa. Verse 9, he says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus Christ. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in a raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But arise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and the Moses said would come to pass. That the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Number one, the gospel exposes sinful missions. Look at verse 9. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do these things. So we get a picture of the unregenerate heart. He's going, I just thought this was the right thing to do. I was going about my life, living the way I wanted to live, and I was totally fine with that. I was convinced that these Christians were wrong, and that I was right, and I should persecute them. I was convinced of this. It's a picture of the unregenerate heart. And then the heart affects the mind. You know, most unbelievers don't think they're doing anything really that bad. You unpack God's wrath, God's judgment, God's holiness. You talk about hell, and I don't think I'm that bad. I'm not convinced of that. That's what Paul's saying here. I was convinced I was in the right. But then something amazing happens. But not yet. So you're going to keep on this 
Um, I'm, I'm continuing on in this mission against God. Look at verse 10. And I did so in Jerusalem. He's saying, I, it seemed right to me, so I did it. I just did whatever was right to me. I was convinced, so I acted. In a, in a way, it's that I am my own God. I am my own authority. That's a picture of the unregenerate heart, pre-Christ. I'm convinced of my ways. I'm set in my ways. You can't change my mind. I think you're wrong. And I'll do whatever I want to do. That is a sinful, self-centered mission. So before conversion, Paul's mission was to stop the spread of Christianity, not to advance it. I mean, how ironic, right? If you know anything about the life of Paul, we know that he's probably the greatest missionary not named Jesus who ever lived. And here he's saying, that's not how I always was. In fact, I was against the spread of the gospel. Look at verse 10. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. So we can agree, he's not on our team. right? He's, he's trying to lock up Christians. He's not going to church camp. He, he's not wearing a WWJD bracelet. He's not on our team. Look at that third phrase in verse 10. He says, after receiving authority from the chief priest. Now jump to verse 12. I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. See how he repeated that. He keeps referencing that, hey, I had the authority. I had someone justify what I was doing. I went to the chief priest. They said it was cool, and so that's why I did what I did. Now, notice how Paul is looking for outside justification. This is without exception. We all have this. Everybody wants their life to be justified. Everybody wants their style of life to be justified. And Paul's saying, I got the authority of the chief priest. The priest told me I could do it. So we're good. This is a, a typical human action. I, I want to get other people to affirm me, to, to tell me that what I'm doing is right. I don't want you to step on my toes. I don't want you to tell me what I'm doing is wrong. Now, not to get too political, but I do work in D.C., so I do have to give you a little something, you know, a little passing remark. Um, you know, thousands of people got worked up over the Amendment 1 issue. Remember that? And a lot of it was that they want a certain lifestyle justified. I want the government to tell me that the way I live is okay. That's what Paul's doing here. My, my style of life, what I'm doing, what I'm pursuing, it's cool because so-and-so said it's cool. I got the chief priest on my team. They're the government. They're the authorities. They're justifying my lifestyle. Now, this may be a bit of a tangent, but I think it's, it's somewhat related. Uh, when I was an RA at UNC Greensboro, I was an RA for, for two years, um, there's this big pull for inclusivity and tolerance. And um, I remember having a conversation with my, my boss where I said, I find that inclusivity is pretty exclusive. So what do you mean? I said, well, you can be a part of the inclusivity group as long as you don't have exclusive worldviews. Like, I believe there's one exclusive way to God. I can't join the inclusive club because you're all inclusive, except for me. 
So there's this weird internal inconsistency with inclusivity and then with tolerance. I found that, I said, boss, you know, I think many people are just intolerant to intolerance. M- many people, I mean, Chick-fil-A is um, about to get kicked off of Elon's campus because their owner simply voiced what he believed about marriage. And I found, man, I think that's just, in, that's you being intolerant to what you perceive to be intolerance. So this is weird, this outside, I want to be justified, don't tell me I'm wrong. This is, these are all aspects of a sinful mission. I'm my own authority, and I get other people to justify my lifestyle. Now I think this stems from something that John Calvin once called the sensus divinitatis. This is the, the sense of the divine. By the way, I'm taking part-time seminary, so I love, I always do big words, my Vocab, and so there's a, there's a big word, sensus divinitatis, the sense of the divine. What he's getting at is that everybody has this thing inside of them that calls out to God. We, God gave us something, that's why we love um, justice, that's why we value love, that's why we value justification, outside justification. I think that's what's happening here. There's a sense of I want my lifestyle to be justified. And when you zoom out, what it really is, is I want God to look on my life and be pleased. All aspects of a mission. And what Paul is doing is he's finding in people what he can only find in God. That justification. I went to the chief priest. Now look at verse 12. In this connection. What connection? Verse 11. And I punished them off in all the synagogues, and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to the foreign cities. That connection. I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. The commission of the chief priest. This is Paul's great commission. Paul's great commission is to stop the spread of Christianity. That is his pursuit in life. That's his great commission. And all of us have a sinful great commission. If you're an unbeliever, it's the thing you, you are attracted to most. The thing you pursue, the thing you, you believe will give you the most satisfaction, the most fulfillment, the most joy. If you're a believer, you too have a sinful great commission that you wrestle with daily. A thing that fights for your attention and steals your affection I'm calling it a sinful great commission. Now watch how the gospel exposes the sinful missions. Verse 13. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So the gospel exposes our sinful missions by, by putting us face to face with the one whom we have offended. When Jesus comes, light comes. And it shines a bright spotlight on our lives, does it not? And that's when we see, oh wow, I, I was murdering Christians? But I was, I was convinced that was the right way to go. I was so foolish. These are typical post-conversion fights you have with yourself. I can't believe I did that. I did that? 
Why? Because a light has been shown on your life. So Paul gets a face-to-face interaction with Jesus. And in that moment, Jesus shows him what he's really made of. He shines a light on him. He shows him who he really are, who he really is. He shows him what he really treasures, what he really values. So basically what I'm saying is that the gospel exposes our sinful missions by revealing the ultimate missionary. That's my second point. The gospel reveals the ultimate missionary. So let me just reiterate. Paul's not looking for Jesus. But apparently, Jesus is looking for Paul. He is the great missionary. He is the ultimate missionary. He is the missionary who left the comforts of heaven to be incarnated as a man and to live and to walk on this earth and to die for the sins of those who would trust in him. You know, typical missionaries will go somewhere and they'll share a message, but they can't die for your sins. This is the best missionary. He goes and he dies and he calls and he searches you out. Now look at the boldness of, of Christ in this text. So he's coming to seek and to save the lost. He, he comes to Paul and he lovingly knocks him down. Isn't that awesome? He lovingly knocks him down. You know, trying to run away from Jesus is like trying to play tag with Usain Bolt. Good luck. C.S. Lewis calls him the hound of heaven. He sniffs us out. And when he gets us, he lovingly knocks us down and shines a big, bright light on us. Spurgeon says, the splendors of his deity was clothed in the rags of manhood. He came on a search and rescue mission. He's a man on a mission to seek and to save the lost, the ultimate missionary, who finds Paul in his lowest point. And, and, and this is why, as a campus outreach ministry, as, as a college ministry, we have this, this thing in our, our main beliefs. It's called incarnational ministry. It's one of our pillar beliefs. It's incarnational ministry. What we say is, hey, go live in the dorms. Go live on campus. Be an RA. Incarnate yourself in that dorm. Incarnate yourself on that soccer team. Join fraternity. Incarnate yourself to that fraternity. All we're doing is following the model of the great missionary. It's incarnational ministry. Now, I want to show you a few things that Jesus does. I want to hold him up and and let's just look at him and see how amazing this interaction is. Now, the first thing I want you to notice is that phrase, a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language. If you're familiar with the Bible, you'll know in Philippians 3, Paul says, I was a what? Hebrew of Hebrews. So so Jesus is coming, speaking Paul's language. I want you to get that. Jesus speaks your language. Jesus knows you. Now, Paul's on the road to Damascus, and he has no idea that anyone would, would know who he is. Jesus knows We see his ultimate personal knowledge. Jesus speaks my language. He knows me. He knows everything about me. I want you to get that. 
conversion is all about meeting Jesus for the first time. And he knows you. Now this is um, comforting, but it's also terrifying. The fact that Jesus knows me is absolutely terrifying. Because he knows all of my faults. He knows my thoughts. And what's happening right now is conversion. Paul is being converted. He's realizing that he has offended God. He has offended the God of the universe. The God of the universe does not approve of his lifestyle. You remember that previously Paul stated how he persecuted Christians? Yet here we have Jesus saying, why are you persecuting me? He didn't say, hey, Paul, man, knock it off, man. My people are trying to share the gospel. You're getting in their way. It's tough for them. Knock it off. He doesn't do that. Why are you persecuting me? So apparently, when you mess with the church, you mess with Jesus. Apparently, when you mess with Jesus' younger siblings, you mess with the big brother. And what Jesus is saying is, I got their back. You're persecuting them. You're really persecuting me. Let me give you an illustration. So, um, I'm sure some of you have heard about the whole replacement ref fiasco in the NFL. So basically, um, the NFL was supposed to have the refs signed to another year of refing, and the refs wanted pensions. And the, the NFL said, no, we're not going to give you any pensions. And so the ref went on strike. And so the NFL decided to hire replacement referees. They thought, what's the big deal? It's just a few referees. They're not that great anyway. Wrong. <laughs> These refs were terrible. Um, in fact, ratings went up because people were tuning in just to see how bad the refs were blowing. ESPN ratings were through the roof. There were like talk shows on other channels that were talking about the NFL. Like Oprah was talking about football. Crazy. And what we found was that the players and the coaches were yelling at the refs on the field. But there was something really interesting that was happening. When you would speak to the refs, or when you speak to the coaches and the players after the games, they would say, we're not really angry at the refs. We're really angry with the owners. We're angry with the NFL. Because they're the ones responsible. And so the refs kind of get the hostility, but we're really upset with the owners. That's what's going on here. We are replacement refs. People get mad at us. They're really mad at God. That's what's going on here. Jesus is saying, you're persecuting them, but you're really after me. What you really don't like is me. Which is why Jesus says, if they persecute you, it's because they persecuted me first. Let's keep moving. Look what Jesus says next. Look at the last phrase in verse 14. He says, It is hard for you to kick against the goads. This is interesting. So a goad was a long, sharp um, object that was used to prod unyielding, stubborn ox. Right? And so when the ox wouldn't move in the direction that the master wanted it to move, the master would goad it. And oftentimes, the ox would kick against the goad. And when it did that, it harmed no one but itself. The master wasn't in pain, 
but the goad would go even deeper in the ox's flesh. And the ox would eventually get injured and tired, and eventually it would have its will broken and submit to his master. And Paul's going, or Jesus saying, that's you, Paul. You're kicking against the goads. I'm going to win this battle. You're not harming me. You're really harming yourself. Now, um, Spurgeon preached this text one time, and afterwards a man came up to him and said, you mean to tell me that our Lord calls me an ox? And in classic Spurgeon form, he said, it is the ox who ought to be offended. (laughs) So I've never heard of an ox who disobeyed God. Now, I think if we were to ask Jesus to explain what this phrase meant, like if I'm, when I get to heaven, I'm going to go, hey, JC, man, like, what did you mean by it's hard to kick against the goads? I think he would tell me a parable. Doesn't sound like he, the way he, would, he works. He'd tell me a parable. I think it would be called the parable of the stubborn ox. So I've taken the liberty to devise a rough draft of what I think he would say in the parable of the stubborn ox. A certain man traveled to an auction to purchase an ox. When he found the one he wanted, he paid ten minus for it. Then, in his joy, he took his ox home, fed him with the finest grain, and gave his ox the finest barn to sleep in. One day, the man had special use for his ox. He loaded the ox with supplies to take to the far country, and he began to direct his ox in the direction that it was to go. However, the ox was stubborn and refused to submit to his master's will. Three times, the master tenderly pleaded with his ox to obey his guiding, but the ox refused. So the master went inside the house and created a sharp stick out of spare wood. When he returned outside, he instructed his ox to move and pricked it with the stick. Instead of submitting to his master, the ox was furious and kicked against the stick. The ox groaned as the stick went deeper into its flesh. This happened several times until the ox was in too much pain to fight back any longer. He finally obeyed his master and in so doing became the most useful animal on the farm. To this day, one may travel to the farm and still see the wound in the ox's leg. Thus is the kingdom of God. Just speculation. I feel like that's kind of how he would explain what's going on here. You know how in the Gospels you have the, the parable and he, verse later you have the point of the parable because no one ever understands, right? And so I think if we had that section to explain what this parable meant, we would bring up a few things. The ox is by nature stubborn and the master is by nature patient and tender-hearted. The master went to great lengths to purchase this ox, but the ox doesn't appreciate it. The master prods the ox only after he has asked it nicely to move. I think we would see how the ox was, had his will broken by the master. I think we would see how the, the ox became useful to the master only when it learned how to submit to the master's will. And ultimately, I think we would find that the ox is us and Jesus is the master. Let me press for a second. Some of us will hear God's word, will hear God speak through his word, and stay still. You're kicking against the goads, harming no one but yourself. 
Now note, note verse 14. He says, it is hard for you. He's saying, it's hard for you, Paul. I'm, I'm, I care about you. So although Paul is murdering Christians, although he is on a sinful mission, Jesus still cares about him. Isn't that awesome? Paul is literally putting himself in the way of the advance of the gospel. And Jesus says, I care about you. My rebuke is a rebuke rooted in love. It is hard for you. Now, that doesn't mean he won't goad us, though. He cares about us, therefore he goads us. The ox cannot be useful until he learns to submit to his master. So how does God goad us? Think three ways. Through his word, through his people, and through his sovereignty. Three ways that God goads us. His word, his people, his sovereignty. Let me explain. When God's word is unpacked, we have a responsibility. We have an option. Obey, kick. When God's word is unpacked to you, do you obey it or do you kick against it? God also goes through his people. God gives us godly authority, gives us elders, pastors, friends who, who lovingly point out inconsistencies in our character. And when that happens, we have an option. Humbly obey or stubbornly kick. God also goes through his sovereignty. He puts us in situations where he wants us to live out our faith. So I'll put it bluntly. If you ever freak out over something, you're kicking against the goad of God's sovereignty. You're not really trusting that God is sovereign. That's how we kick against the goad. And what Jesus is saying to Paul is, don't do that. It's hard for you. Come to me and submit to my will. Uh, last weekend we were at a conference and David Platt said, man, it's like God has this thing rigged. Like there's just no way to get the upper hand on God. It's either, really, it's either his way or the highway. It's like he has this thing rigged. So we might as well submit to God. We might as well stop kicking against the goads. So how do I know if that's me? How do I know if I kick against the goats? I kind of alluded to it earlier, but basically when God's truth is unpacked to you, do you obey, do you worship, do you rejoice, do you repent, or do you kick? Do you kick back? If you kick back, you're in that category. In a way, we're like Paul, kicking against the goats, harming no one but ourselves. The master wasn't injured. The ox was injured. And the whole point was to see the potential of the ox. That's the last part of the parable I want you to see. The potential of the ox. Now, back in the day, oxen were incredibly useful animals. They're big, they're strong, they can transport stuff. But they're by nature stubborn. But if you can never get the ox to obey you, it is usually the most useful animal on the farm. And so what Jesus is saying to Paul is, Paul, I can use you. I can use you for my glory. I don't need you, Paul. Oh, but I can use you. And God looks at every single one of us and says, 
You are a strong ox for the kingdom of God. I can use you. I want you on my team. Again, I don't need you. I, I can do this thing without you. Oh, but I can use you. You can be a useful ox on my farm. I want you to see the potential of the ox. And if you kick against the goads, you'll never do that. You'll never get to really walk and experience what joy it is to be a part of God's mission. So can I ask you, aren't you tired of kicking against the goads? In what area of your life do you feel like you're, you're kicking, you're kicking back, you're not really letting God in, you, I want this my way. Don't kick, submit. Now look at verse 16. I want to show you how conversion and mission are literally in the same sentence here. Verse 16. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose. Why does God say? That's the question. Why does God say? For this purpose. What's the purpose? To appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen. God saves us that we would be an instrument of salvation to others. God saves us to save others. He doesn't just save us and, and whisk us away to heaven immediately. No, He has a plan for us. There's a reason why you didn't get zoomed to heaven the moment you believed. Because God wants to use you. So God saves sovereignly, purposefully, and missionally. He saves sovereignly, purposefully, and missionally. He saves sovereignly in that He initiates to us. Again, Paul was not looking for Christ, but Jesus was looking for him. He initiated to him. He intervened sovereignly. God saves purposefully. He decides when to save. Jesus saves Paul when he's on the way to sin. He literally, if, if it's like for us in, in 2012, he's getting on the bus, going to Vegas. Jesus stops the bus, says, get off. You work for me now. Jesus saves us, oftentimes, at our lowest point. He saves purposefully. God also saves missionally. He saves in order to send us on a radical mission. That's my last point for tonight. The gospel sends us on a radical mission. So what is that mission? Look at verse 16. I have appointed you as what? Two things, a servant and a witness. A servant and a witness. That's your identity. You're a servant, you're a witness. Our mission is twofold. Servant, I want you to do some stuff. Witness, I want you to say some stuff. There's this big debacle over the, the phrase that um, it, it says, share the gospel every day and, and when necessary use words. People go, whoa, that's ridiculous. Share the gospel every day and always use words. Let me revise it. Share the gospel every day, always use words, always back it up with your life. How about that? Servant, witness. So what do we go do? Look at verse 17. Delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. The first thing we do is we go. That's step one. Go. I'm sending you, Paul. 
So go. So once we go, what do we do? What do we, what do we say? What's our mission? So I'm in front of an unbeliever. What do I do? We do the impossible. We do the impossible. Look at verse 18. It's, look, look how verse 17 flows into verse 18. I am sending you to open their eyes. That's impossible. You don't have to be in ministry long to know that's a trap right there. I'm not walking in there. I can't open anybody's eyes. So why would he put that? I'm sending you to open their eyes. We just heard 2 Corinthians 4. It's the gospel. It's the light of the glory of God that opens the eyes. We can't make that happen. We just, the, the robs can't clap his hands and stomp his feet and people can see. So why does Jesus say, Paul, open their eyes? I think it's because when God saves someone, he works so intimately through that person that as we speak the gospel message, God uses that message to open their eyes. And so from our vantage point, it looks like I just shared something and then boom, their eyes were open. What really happened is that God used that gospel message to open their eyes. That's what's going on here. We partner with Christ in the salvation of souls. He uses the words, the gospel message to open the eyes of the blind. Which means that our mission is dependent on our message. We have no mission outside of our message. We got one message. One singular message. That's the gospel. Our mission is dependent on our message. Look at verse 18. I'm sending you to open their eyes. Why? What's the point? What do I want them to do? That they may turn. So our message involves repentance. Our message involves calling sinful people to turn. Turn from what? Keep reading. Turn from darkness to light. What does that mean? Keep reading. From the power of Satan to God. We tell a sinful generation to stop following the promises of Satan. Stop believing the lies. That's part of our message. We confront the lies of our culture. We confront the demonic lies of our culture. That you can be God. You don't need God. You can be your own God. Turn from that. We tell the world to stop serving the God of money, sex, and ambition. Serve God. Serve the real God. That's our message. So what else does our message involve? Verse 18, halfway down. Verse 18. That they may receive forgiveness of sins. Our message involves forgiveness. We tell sinful people how they can get off scotch-free. One of my favorite authors, Brian Zahan, he says, it's like we're happy thieves. We're happy thieves who got off scotch-free. We tell guilty people how they can be set free from their punishment. How? How is it? How can I be forgiven of my sins? Well, he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so in him we might be the righteousness of God. By faith, we, there was a, a substitution that happened. Christ took your sins, you take his righteousness, 
You're clothed in that. You can stand before God. He says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. That's how you can be forgiven of your sins. And what Jesus is telling Paul is, go do that. Tell people how they can be forgiven. Tell people the message that saved you. What else does our message involve? It says next, a place among those who are sanctified. A place. Our message involves a family. Our message involves adoption. Our message involves the local church. A place. The local church points to what is to come. And what we say in our gospel message is, hey, you need to join this redeemed set of people. And every time we we gather on earth, what we're, we're really doing is we're foreshadowing what's to come in heaven. You have a place among those who are sanctified. But look, there's more. So how does the unbeliever have access to all of this treasure? We talked about how they can turn, escape the power of Satan, have their sins forgiven, be adopted into the heavenly family, be rooted into a local church. How, how can I get that? A place among those who are sanctified by faith. We proclaim a message that is free of charge. All you have to do is trust and obey. Who do we trust and obey? Keep reading. Sanctified by faith in me. That's Christ speaking. It's in a person. Faith in a person. The the central message of the gospel is a person. It's all about Jesus. We basically just point people to Jesus. That's what evangelism is. Point people to Jesus. What he's done how he lived, how he died, how he resurrected, how he commissions us, how he forgives all of our sins, how he pursues us, even in the midst of our rebellion. We point people to Jesus. Those are the key elements of our message. Repentance, forgiveness, adoption, faith, Christ. That was the central elements of our gospel message. Now, look at verse 19. Remember that Paul is still in front of King Agrippa, just sharing his testimony. Now he's going to jump out of his testimony and start talking to the king. Verse 19. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. I think you have to read that with a bit of sarcasm. Because if you think of what he just said, yeah, I was, I was on the road to kill some Christians, a big bright light came out of nowhere, knocked me off my horse, the risen Savior was in front of me, said, get up, you work for me now, commissioned me out, told me to be an apostle, and I thought it was a good idea to do what he says. I think there's just a bit of sarcasm there. You read through the, the Bible, you see people don't want God to speak to them audibly. Exodus 20, after God gives the Ten Commandments, remember what happened with the people of Israel? It says they were frightened, and they said, Moses, you speak to us, we'll, we'll listen. Don't ever let God speak to us again, lest we die. Paul's going, it was a good idea to obey Jesus. I just just thought it would be a good idea. So if you're looking for reasons to be missional, there's one, obedience. Sheer obedience to Jesus. Yes, love for how he has saved us, 
But here we see obedience. I was not disobedient. So a Christian who is not preoccupied with the Great Commission is having an identity crisis. Let me explain why. If you call yourself an evangelical, but you don't evangelize, that's like saying, I'm a baker, I just don't bake. It's an identity crisis. It's nothing less than an identity crisis. Another reason why we're to be missional is out of sheer love for the lost. We love our neighbors. We love our co-workers. We love the people in our churches. We love our classmates. We love our, our, our roommates. And so we want to point them to Jesus. Point them to the only hope that there is. Obedience to Jesus. Love for the lost. Now what I want to do next, I want to do five key elements of our mission. Okay, so five elements of our mission. I want to zoom through these. So, number one, our mission is local. Our mission is local. Look at verse 20. I declared first to those in Damascus. I got saved in Damascus. I preached in Damascus. I shared my testimony. I shared the gospel where I was. Local. Our mission is local. We are to be about the local glory of God. Neighborhoods, schools, jobs, local missions. Number two, our mission is global. Look back at verse 20. I declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles. So we're to be about local mission, but also global mission. We have to be about the global mission of God. Why? Because the atonement was global. Let me explain. In Revelation 5, you have the angels crying out, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, get this, from every tribe and language and people and nation. If we lack passion for the nations... It's because we lack passion for the atonement. If we don't understand God's love for the nations, it's because we don't understand God's love. The blood of Jesus was for the nations. You can't love the blood of Jesus and not love the nations. The blood of Jesus was for the nations. We're to be about the global glory of God. We have a local mission. We have a global mission. But look... Our mission is dangerous. Verse 21. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Our mission is dangerous. Expect opposition. I'll tell you a quick story. When I was a junior in college, um, I was witnessing to this guy who was a Hare Krishna and um, was telling him, you know, Jesus is God. He's the only way to God. And he stood up and said, No! Jesus is not God. Krishna is God. And in that moment, I, I had this relation. Wow. I mean, there's small, I'm being persecuted. He's calling me out in the middle of the lobby. He's yelling at me. Why? Because I told him the gospel message. I was on mission. And our mission is dangerous. That's a very small, light, momentary affliction. That's nothing compared to 
to what our brothers and sisters face in China, in Taiwan, in Yemen. It's a very small light affliction, but our mission is dangerous. Number four, our mission is biblical. Our mission is biblical. Look at verse 22. Saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. That the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Paul's not saying anything new. He's going, I see it in the Bible. Moses and the prophet. I'm proclaiming nothing but what I see in this book. Which is why we need Bible studies. Our mission involves Bible studies. Our mission involves lunch breaks with co-workers to read through the Gospel of John. Our mission involves bringing our friends to church to hear sermons based on God's Word. Because God's mission goes through God's Word. God works through God's Word to save sinners. So if if we're going to leave leave our our Bibles in the back, we're not going to see anything happen. We need the Word of God. Our mission is focused on God's word. And lastly, our mission is glorious. Our mission is glorious. Verse 23. That Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light. Isn't that glorious? Our mission is all about spreading the hope of Jesus Christ. Our mission is, I mean, when you see an unbeliever break down and say, I need Christ, that's glorious. When you get to witness transformation before your very eyes, that's, that is glorious. That's awesome. Our mission is glorious. Yes, it's dangerous, but it's glorious. We tell people how a Savior can turn the light on. So let's do it. Let's do it. Let's go. Let's pray, and let's go. Father God, we thank you for our time together. Lord, we thank you that you've, you've saved us in our lowest point, on our own little road to Damascus, our own little road to sin, and you showed us Christ, and you transformed us. And God, we ask that you give us the boldness and the faith to point people to you to have our lives be used for your glory. And Father, we pray that the gospel message would come out of our mouths with power, that you would say, Lord, that you would call people to themselves, that they would rejoice with you, and we would rejoice that we got to take part in that. God, don't let us be stubborn ox who kick against the goats. May we be obedient and submit to our Master's will. For your name, for your glory, for our joy. Amen. Thanks, guys.